You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on Genesis called The Patriarchs. Tonight we're going to continue our studies for the park, Patriarchs. We're looking at the life of Isaac. And if you don't mind, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26. I want to begin by reading those first 19 verses of the chapter. The title is Gerar. I know that doesn't mean a lot to you, but it's the place where it took place. All this happened, and so it's got to mean something. Let me know if you find out. But would you stand with me as we begin by reading this together? Beginning in verse 1, Genesis chapter 6. It says, Now there was a famine in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time, And Isaac went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, in Gerar. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements and my commands and my decrees and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar and when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. Where have I heard that before? (laughs) Because he was afraid to say she is my wife, he thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. And when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife Rebekah. And so Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? And Isaac answered, Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. And so Abimelech gave orders to all the people, Anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold, because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. And he had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. And so all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. And then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. And so Isaac moved away from there, and he camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug at the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we continue our study through the book of Genesis and the life of the patriarchs that your Holy Spirit would indeed uh, open our eyes to things that we may not have noticed or recognized for their importance up till now. That, God, we know that your Holy Spirit is always willing to search deep, deep into our hearts and our minds, but oftentimes we're not that open to allowing that to happen. I pray, Lord, that you would change our minds and that we would just invite you to really speak to us regarding things that you want to bring to the surface and change in our lives, for certainly that is true of all of us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, natural disasters, 
occur in every part of the world and always have. I mean, as far back as we go in human history, recorded history, we hear about hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and droughts and tsunamis and earthquakes and fires and snowstorms and ice storms and windstorms and sandstorms, volcanic eruptions, global warming, global cooling, locusts. We even have in these days sharknadoes and, and, and zombie apocalypse. I mean, there's all sorts of things to happen. And in today's kind of 24-hour, seven-day-a-week news cycle with information on the level of being kind of an overload, we get oversaturated that before the tornado or the hurricane even hits, we're already exhausted and have no energy to go on. You could easily conclude that we're living probably in one of the most unprecedented times of cataclysm and natural disasters in human history. Yet, historically, we're moving along just about the way it has since as far back as we can mention. It's just that we have more coverage and more information. But throughout history, people have been frequently buffeted by all sorts of cataclysmic events. Even the Bible records some very major ones where it says something very cryptically like that was when the earth was, earth was divided in the days of Peleg. And we think, what in the, happen, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> you know, we have a lot of speculation and guesses, but we don't know for sure. But we know about the fall and how that changed dramatically the ecosystem of the planet. It introduced the toxic effects of death because of sin into human history. And we've lived with sin and its effect for so long and so adjusted to it, if you will, that we're really not so very upset. But I think Adam and Eve saw a distinct difference, a line of very clear demarcation between a world without sin and a world suddenly that was subject to sin. In fact, in a way, we don't know how long Adam and Eve lived before sin entered into the world. We have various opinions, but the bottom line is that when you live in a world where there's no, no sin, there's not a lot to report. There's not a lot to talk about. That's why it's only got a couple chapters. But as soon as sin comes in, you end up with the rest of the Bible, and it just goes from event to event to event, because somehow sin is really the thing that propels the news events of the world, because 99% of it is reporting on something that's gone wrong and sometimes terribly and horribly wrong. You know, Jesus even said in Matthew 24, somewhat of a warning, actually, when he said there will be famines and there will be earthquakes in various places. But he says, don't view these things as the beginning of the end. They're, they're just the birth pangs. They're, there's those things that will precede those final events. And it seems from the book of Revelation that those final events will be incredibly intense. But nonetheless, what we see and what's often uh, so kind of hyped up about climate change really, and when you look at the facts, isn't really much of a change at all, but it's somehow we overlook things because there are some naturally occurring cyclical events that were more feared in ancient times than they are today, particularly this one here about famine. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, famine is repeatedly reported in very ominous and dreadful ways, and we can assume that people of that time that when they were reading about famine or they heard about famine they had a very strong reaction to it. It was a very terrifying reaction because they didn't have any fallback positions like we have today. I mean, when I think about how that Israel and, and, and even California went through a seven-year cycle of drought, and yet it was uncomfortable and unpleasant and created difficulties, but they had ways of coping because they're part of an international economic system. They, they didn't run out of food. But that didn't exist in biblical times. 
When it says, in, for example, in Genesis 12, 10, he says, now there was a famine in the land, speaking of the one that took place during the life of Abraham. He says, I, I, I really think that they understood the seriousness of that simple phrase. So that there's certain things that we hear that don't really excite much action inside of our brain. We have different things. I mean, for example, when you sit down across the desk from a doctor and he says, well, it's cancer. I mean, immediately you say to somebody, I've got cancer, and everybody begins to relate to all of the trauma that's associated with that terrible disease. But when we say famine, there's not a single one of us who's really ever gone without food except because we were on some stupid diet. So as a consequence, the idea of not having access to food is, is an unknown experience, something that we don't connect with. But when we read the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Ruth and David and Ahab and, and, and on and on, even the early church where we read it says a, a prophet named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. It's interesting because if you understand the dynamics of the, economically of the Roman world, what that, all that had to mean is if the harvest in Egypt failed, the food supply would be cut in half. If the harvest in Egypt failed, the food supply would be cut in half. Rome could not survive without Egyptian wheat. And so, explains why they had to conquer Rome, I mean, conquer Egypt. But the bottom line is, when he says this, this is put in here to let us know this was a terrible portent of something horrible that was going to come, a severe famine. Famines were usually caused by crop failures, and crop failures come from different causes, primarily two things. One was drought, the failure of there to be rain, enough water to, to water the crops, but the second one was pestilences. And many times, those two things come together because often when there's long droughts, for some reason, locusts germinate during periods of drought and come up out of their nestings and begin to swarm and destroy just about everything. We've not had a locust plague here in this country since the 1930s, but my mother told me what it was like growing up in the wheat fields of the Dakotas and seeing those swarms of locusts come. And it sounded pretty uh, apocalyptic, pretty scary stuff. But the reality is that they would destroy everything because people in the ancient world lived in what was called a subsistence agriculture. And what that term means is that you grow enough food to feed yourself. In other words, you know, you didn't have a wide diversity of crops because you couldn't grow a lot of different things. So the meals were pretty basic, and usually it was grain. For the average Israelite at that time, they ate barley grain. Wheat was really reserved for the wealthier people, but barley, which is a very hardy grain, grows in the mountains and, and sprouts earlier and harvests earlier, and that was their main source. Now, you might say, how do we know what they ate? You're going to love this. Archaeologists dig into latrines, and they dig up samples, and then they examine them under the microscope, and they can tell you exactly what people ate. And you know what the basic diet of an Israeli was? He ate barley, grapes, usually raisins and, uh, and olives. That was 95% of their diet. Meat was rare. In fact, they would only time they really had a meat diet was when there was one of the feast days where they would kill animals as sacrifices and most of the meat would be cooked and then uh, given to people to eat. And that would be the few occasions in which they actually would ingest meat into their diet. 
But that all comes back to this whole idea that your whole output agriculturally is, is really aimed at survival and, and meeting the local requirements that you have and there rarely is any kind of surplus. So when God says to Israel, if you're faithful to me and don't work the seventh year, now think about how easy it is to say, well, we just won't harvest the seventh year. Wait a minute. <laughs> I, just, I just had enough barley grain to get through next year, and now you're telling me I'm supposed to trust God and not plant and believe that I'm going to be okay. And God says, what I'll do, if you'll honor me in that way, the sixth year, I'll give you three times as much so that the seventh year you won't have to plant. In fact, two years after that, you'll still be eating the excess of the year before. Well, keep in mind that average farmer would produce maybe a six-time increase. I mean, for every grain he put in the ground, he gets six grains back. And they'd separate out one grain so they'd have something to plant next year. That's your seed grain. And then they had to figure out the rest of what they had had to extend through the remainder of the year. So this is, this is existence at its bare minimum. Uh, that's why in, in the ancient world and even up until very modern times in places like India and so forth, where obesity is viewed as being a sign of blessing and wealth. When the psalmist says, delight yourself in fatness, he really means fatness. He's talking about cellulite here. He's saying delight yourself in it because there's so few people who would ever have the experience of having too much to eat. Their daily experience was having not enough. So that what they depended upon primarily was what we'd call the conditional promise of God to Israel that he would give them the spring and the autumn rains. Deuteronomy 11.35, or 11, excuse me, 11.13 says, if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn, that is following the planting, you plant your grain, and God says, then I'll bring rain to germinate your seeds. And spring rains, right before you harvest, I'll bring another rain so you get that final spurt of growth so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil, and I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. You see, Israel is a very different topography than you would find in what we call the great river empires of Mesopotamia, where the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and so forth lived. They had, they had the great Tigris and Euphrates rivers that flowed uh, through their land, and you had in Egypt the Nile River. What that meant was you had these large rivers that were able to provide a constant supply of water. Yeah, river levels would go up and down based upon changes in rainfall, but pretty much you had rain filling the rivers to a sufficient level so that they were able to develop agriculture. We know that they built canals. They were able to redirect water to all these places to grow greater and greater crops. This is why these countries, these empires also became the great military powers of the ancient world because they were the first people who were able to provide enough excess food so that you could actually have people who are professional military people who would go out to war. Because even before this, I mean, the Greeks used to have to go out and harvest their fields. The Greeks only went to war after the harvest because they had to spend all of the harvest season planting and raising and, and, and harvesting their crops. And once everything was taken in, then they could put on their uniforms and go out and fight each other. It became quite seasonal. So it can be, became more like recreational. It's kind of like football season. But, 
the whole idea is that Israel didn't have any of these benefits. The only river that flows through Israel is the Jordan River, and it's really not any bigger than the Little Spokane. If you never go to Israel, but you want to see the Jordan River, drive down the Little Spokane, and you've seen it. Except this one is cleaner. <laughs> that one is more like a, a muddy, muddy uh, creek sometimes. But it, it lies at the base between two mountains, the great, uh, it's called the, this great rift that runs through uh, all the way from Africa all the way up into Europe. So it's this great rift valley, and the Jordan River is at the bottom of it. You can't farm there because there's no place to farm. And so we find, where did people grow? Well, they, they grew in, in what's called the Shephelah. And that's why when we read statements in, in here where it says there were three years of famine in the days of David, year after year, we're talking about three years of consecutive famine had huge consequences. Again, the ancient reader would look at that and understand that this was going to put people in the worst of circumstances they could possibly face. I mean, there was no piggly wiggly that they could run down to and, and pick up a canned good of something to keep them going. Three years was a particularly threatening term. And so we kind of suspect that actually it's more metaphorical than it is even literal. That it may simply mean three years of famine means it went on for a very long period of time. The first year, what would happen is you would eat your, your grain, you would eat your seed grain. So everything you would store it up to plant next year, you would eat this year because there's no reason, nothing's going to grow because no rain has come. The second year, you sell whatever you have, including your children or even yourself, in order to generate money. Because if a wealthy man would buy your children as servants, then they would at least be fed at his table and they would be kept alive. The third year, starvation would set in. And uh, within a very short period of time, usually people will develop some kind of disease because their resistance becomes so weak because they're so emaciated. Children die very quickly because they, uh, their body's in such a high developmental phase that without proper nutrition, they die first. It takes adults longer. But it's really a death sentence, essentially. That when you read that there's three years of famine, he's saying that there was really a death sentence upon the land. This is why by the second year of a famine, mass migrations would usually take place. Um, and that's where people would move to wherever they knew there was a consistent level of productivity. And in Israel, there's only one place that you could go. It's called the Shephelah. The Shephelah is really the, the plain that runs along the, the coastline uh, from, from, uh, from the Mount Carmel all the way down to Gaza. It's the area where to even today they grow a lot of their wheat and their grain. It extends from the Megiddo Valley, the Armic Valley of Armageddon, the Jezreel Valley, all the way down to the city of Gaza today. And then it goes into the desert. And, yeah, and if that wasn't adequate, then you would keep on going south and you would go into Egypt where there was a much, well, we say that they weren't completely immune to, to drought, but they were much better prepared and able to sustain themselves through long periods of time. So later on when we read the story of Jacob and Joseph and going into Egypt, this fits exactly into this paradigm that we're seeing, uh, that I'm talking about at this moment. Which is why we read here in the text that Isaac went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines in Gerar. Now, it's kind of interesting uh, it just tells us essentially that things had gotten so difficult that Isaac did what 
the, the shepherds of that region did, as his father had done, you start heading south into Egypt where you know that there's going to be water, there's going to be grain, and there's going to be pasturage for your animals and a chance to survive, even though you would not be necessarily welcome because the Egyptians considered shepherds to be abominations. So they're going into a context where they're going to be definitely looked down to. But it's interesting because he comes to Gerar and, the, and it tells us that the ruler of this place is called Avi Melech. It's two words in Hebrew. One means father. Abba is father in Aramaic. Avi is, is father in Hebrew. And Melech means the king or the ruler. So this is undoubtedly a title, not an actual name, because we find that the man before him is also called Avi Melech. Probably was his father that Abraham had to deal with. But here we are, we find there's six characters in the Bible who have this name, and three times they're identified as being Philistine rulers. Now, the reference to Philistines in Genesis is often referred to as an anachronism. An anachronism is simply a fancy way of saying, they made a mistake. <laughs> and you'll hear people say, well, the Bible obviously was written much later because we know that the Philistines didn't come into the land of Israel until the 12th century BC. And this is taking place in the 20th or 18th century at the earliest. And therefore, it had to be written after the 12th century, long after Moses. In other words, this is not, books of Genesis and the Torah is not a historical document. They were written many, many centuries after the fact. And that whole conclusion is primarily based upon the fact that they make reference 17 times in the book of Genesis to the Philistines, and they're saying, well, everybody knows the Philistines weren't there, except we don't know that. <laughs> in fact, what we do know is in the 12th century BC, a group of people that we don't know a great deal about called the Palestine, which we refer to and are referred to as our basically translated in our English as the Philistines, invaded Egypt. In fact, they kind of were like the Vikings of the Mediterranean. They are coming someplace from the Greek Isles, and they're marauding. We know that they did severe damage to the Hittite Empire, and they moved south. It brought an end to what we call the Bronze Age, where people made bronze weapons and bronze tools, and it introduced the Iron Age, and there's a lot of controversy. I mean, it go on forever and ever because there's all sorts of theories because nobody has a real definite answer. But it really changed the dynamic of warfare because by the time the Philistines invade Egypt, they are not as large an army, but they are technologically far advanced. They have iron weapons. Now think about it. You're going to go against a guy who's holding a, a, a brass or bronze sword, and you have an iron sword. Who's going to win? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just a huge technological advantage. Actually, the, the Egyptians, from what we read uh, from Ramsey III's uh, account, tells us that they held off the Philistines, and, the, and Philistines settled in the five cities that became the five cities of the Philistines that David had to deal with and Saul had to deal with. But the problem is that the name Philistine doesn't necessarily identify any particular group. To us, you know, it's become a name that we recognize. When you call somebody a Philistine, you're talking about somebody who's kind of a Cretan, 
which actually the Philistines came from Crete, we believe now. But the bottom line is, it's the idea, it's kind of a pejorative, you know, it means that you're, you probably have a very thick brow and you can't figure out co complex co computations like six plus six and stuff like that. You're just kind of this brutish character who kind of bustles around and beats up on everybody. He's the bully on the playground. You know, my parents used to say, don't behave like a Philistine. I didn't even know what a Philistine was, but I figured this could not be a good thing. That affected my reading of the biblical text, by the way. <laughs> but actually, the Philistines were on the other side. It's like when we go into the Middle East or any other country with our technology, we would be like the Philistines. They were far advanced in their technology, and they were deadly in their effect upon those who came. But way back in Deuteronomy, Moses writing this again, probably about... 1500 BC, and he says, as for the Avim, who villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorim, who came from Kaftor, which is Crete, destroyed them and settled in their place. So this is <laughs> three, 400 years before the Philistines began to invade the Middle East, invade Palestine. So how can he say that, identify these people? And the answer is really quite simple because the name Philistine simply means sea people. It's not, it's not any kind of racial group or anything like that. In fact, what we knew is there was, a, no today is there was a major migration over hundreds of years of people coming from the Aegean regions, particularly from Crete, but all over Greece and what we call the Aegean Sea, and they traveled along the coast and they basically pillaged and marauded and attacked and stole, much like we know about the, the Vikings doing uh, during the Middle Ages. So that they were often in ancient writings referred to as pirates, as marauders, as bandits. And they settled all over the place, including in Palestine or in Israel. In fact, the name Palestine is taken from the Greek Palestina, I mean the Latin Palestina, which is what was the name that they called the Philistines. So the Philistines, name is called Palestine, named after them. And I won't go into the long history. But even the Greek historian Herodotus visited Egypt in the 4th century BC, and he claimed that the Greeks were one of the first group of foreigners who ever settled in the land of Egypt. And Gleason Archer, who is expert in such things, says, it is likely that successive waves of sea people from the Aegean migrated to Canaan even as early as Abraham's time and continued coming until the massive movement in the 12th century BC. But the final evidence just came out in the last year where they discovered graves of Philistines. Philistines buried their people different than any of the people living in Palestine. What they did was they dug deep pits and they put their bodies in it without all of their jewelry. They basically kept all the good stuff for themselves, buried the people in deep pits and left them there. That's not the way people were buried in the Middle East. And what they discovered was they found basically... Uh, about 10 children's skeletons that they could extract DNA from, and guess what they found out? <laughs> that 43% of their DNA comes from the Greek Isles. So we know that they came, they were Greeks who moved into that area and settled there. But I think what's getting to more of a spiritual context, what is the most significant about this encounter about Isaac and Abimelech is not that it not only that it bears striking similarity to Abraham's interaction with the same community of Philistines, but it also served as the context for which God reiterates and reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant 
that was being passed from Abraham to Isaac, not to Ishmael, which is one side of the argument, but it's going to Isaac, but more importantly, that the covenant that God made with Abraham, he was basically giving it to the descendants of Abraham without them having to do anything. It's, uh, it's interesting that because historically in times of severe famine, people migrated to places like Egypt. And again, as I mentioned, because of the steady flow of the waters of the Nile, um, God clearly says to Isaac, do not go to Egypt. Now, that doesn't stand out to us if we don't understand the dynamics, but the natural and you might, reasonable thing would be, I'm going to Egypt. You know, I do the math. Sometimes we used to say, well, you know, that's a no-brainer. And then I discovered that what that really meant is you made the decision without using your brain and you really regretted not having thought about it some more. Because oftentimes what seems obvious that we should do is many times God has something quite different and he's wanting us to step back and, and reconsider. So that I suspect that what Isaac did was what people did. You head to Egypt when there's a shortage of food and drought comes in and there's no pasturage. And yet God says, I don't want you doing that. And there I think sometimes we, we miss the faith dynamic operative in Isaac's life. God speaks that to him and he listens. Now, we have a hard time kind of, kind of identifying with that because we think of ourselves, if God spoke to me the way he spoke to them, you know how he spoke to them. He said, Isaac, Isaac. You know, and he would have gone, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, it, obviously, God wants my attention, but it doesn't tell us that. It doesn't say that God was shouting out of a cloud or speaking to him out of a burning bush. It just says that God spoke to him. We don't know how he heard, but the reality is that even when you hear God, it takes faith to obey God when you hear God. And I would love to sit up here and go, you know, <laughs> When God tells me to something, I'm all over that. I'm white on rice, man. No problem here, no struggle, no battle, because I trust God. I'm a man of faith. But I'll lie to you other things if I tell you that as well. Because the simple fact is that when you're looking, doing the simple math and you're looking at there's food here, there's not much food here, there's a little bit of food over there, but they're not gonna, we're not going to be welcome there for very long. And the chances that we're going to survive, much less thrive, are like next to nothing. And I don't understand, God, why in the world you would want us to go there instead of going. You know how we do the math in our head. And what we find is God says, I don't want you going there. I want you to live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and I will bless you. And this was a total act of faith because he had nothing that he can hang on to of a material solid guarantee that this was going to work out. You see, when it comes to walking with God, timing is, is pretty critically important. And my biggest trouble is I'm always in a hurry you know, I would like to see God do what he promises to do. Well, it should have happened yesterday, but I'll accept it today. But when I hit delays, I, it, it really is a weak part for me. When things get stuck, I just don't handle uh, waiting real well. And I know I'm, a, I'm unique in that, so I, I confess that to you and ask you for your prayers. But you know, I, when I get a sense that God's going to do something, I want him to do it right now. And most of the time he doesn't. 
Because God often gives you a vision for what he's gonna do long before he ever does it. And it's that, you know, it says in your patience you possess your souls. Well, there's something, I mean, we often think, well, that's how I get saved. No, the possessing of your soul in that context means you just keep your mind. You don't go crazy. You don't become a loony. Because you just sit back and you rest God's gonna do it, and I don't know how and when he's gonna pull it together, but when he does, it's gonna come together and it's gonna be perfect because when God blesses, the scripture says, he adds no sorrow with it. So that when I launch into something and suddenly I get sorrowful and regretful about what's going on, um, what I'm revealing is that I don't really trust that God's in control. And I, I suspect that that is one of the biggest issues in every one of our lives, believing that God is in control. Today, I, I had to go to my dentist to have a couple of cavities filled, and he couldn't do it, because even after giving me nitrous oxide, my blood pressure was 185 over 112. Before I came tonight, it was 124 <laughs> over 82. What changed? <laughs> and, I, and they're saying, well, is everything okay? And he said, well, let me put it this way. I haven't eaten anything this morning. I've drank six cups of coffee, and I just got off the phone call with, with some repair people who have strung me out for two weeks. We have no furnace. It's freezing cold. No, I'm not all right. <laughs> I am... I'm just furious because these guys have been in our house over the last two weeks five times. And I don't even want to talk about how much money that's cost. And it's still, do you want to know who they are? <laughs> they promised to come out tomorrow morning, so I'll let you know Sunday how it works out. But I am furious. I am, I am just livid. I'm so livid that my blood pressure is about ready to pop out my forehead. And the gal at the desk when she was rescheduling my appointment said, well, you know, one thing we know is that God's in control. <laughs> oh, shut up. <laughs> That's me. You know, um, I used to like to say, you know, I don't suffer fools gladly, but then I realized I like myself. <laughs> kind of invalidate the whole argument, don't you, right at that moment? But here's the thing is, it was interesting to me. I was going through the Gospel of John one time, and I found that six times Jesus said as people tried to promote him to become the king and the Messiah, he said, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Until finally he's sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper and says, now is the time. Jesus was aware of God's timing at every moment of his journey. And I realized, God, that's what I need to be. I, I'm unaware of your timing. And when I begin to push against the, the goads like Paul was doing, it's because I want to be in control and I want to set the agenda and I want things to work out in the time, the way, and the manner that I want them. And it's so hard for me just to sit back and just go, God, you've got it. I found in my life when I've, when I've come to that moment, many times I suddenly look around saying, you know what, I've tried everything I can. There's nothing more I can do. I am out of bullets. 
I'm out of guns. I have nothing to throw at it. I don't even have sticks and stones to hurl at this thing. I give up. I quit. And then it just almost immediately resolves itself. And it occurred to me once, maybe God's trying to show me something. Nah. Anyway. <laughs> but why doesn't God let them? You know, keep in mind here, 100 years from now, God forces them into Egypt because it wasn't the right time. And I thought about this. Why is that? And then it suddenly occurred to me that God not only took them to Egypt, he left them there for a long time because he had told Abraham, they'll be in Egypt until the iniquity of the Canaanites comes to a full. Now, why did he take them to Egypt? And the only thing I can conclude is God saying, I don't want you to be affected by the corruption of the Canaanites. So I'm taking you to Egypt and I'm putting you really as an isolated people and even to the point where you're gonna be in bondage and you're in slaves and you're not gonna be part of the popular culture, you're not gonna be getting ahead, you're not gonna be making a name for yourself, you're not gonna become wealthy and strong and powerful and take on the last name of Trump. None of that stuff's gonna happen you're going to be left here, and when you're really at the very bottom of the bottom, you're nobodies, and you have no identity, I'm going to take you out, and I'm going to form you into what I want you to be. Because oftentimes, you and I don't really become conformable to what God wants for our life until we've given up on all of our dreams and our aspirations, and we just simply sit there and say, God, what's there left for me? And then God says, let me show you. And I believe God, on their part, took them to a place where he brought them to the end of themselves. And at the same time, he waited for the environment to reach a point where God says, I'm going to use you to judge those people, but I don't want you living around them. You know why? Because even before he sent them back, he says, if you go in there and don't just completely wipe out, it'll just be a matter of time before you'll be doing the exact same things they're doing. And you know why that's true? Because sin is always fun for a while. It's always initially attractive. I went to talk to people saying, I just don't know how people can become addicted to drugs. I go, whoa. <laughs> do you want me to explain? <laughs> That's why it's a bad idea to do it once. <laughs> because once you taste it once, it's so sweet, it's brutal to come back. That's so why I'm always amazed when I see people come out of the drug culture and, and get back on their feet because you just have no idea the battle, the wage, the, it's, it's so beyond anything that most people ever have to struggle with and don't do it because you don't want to have to go through that struggle. But it's interesting that what God did during that time is he confirmed his covenant to him. He said, and I will confirm the, foth, foth, the, the oath I swore to your father Abraham. And he goes and he delineates it. We talked about on Sunday, the three parts of the covenant. Number one, for to you and your descendants I will give all these lands. It's interesting, even in this one prophecy, he tells him three times, the land, the land, the land, to understand not only what's going on in the Middle East today and with Israel, but to understand the whole prophecy of fulfillment. It all revolves around a geographical location called the land of Canaan. From the Euphrates in the north to the river of Egypt in the south. This is the land and everything I'm going to do. Half of the commandments of the Old Testament that are the 613 laws that he gives to Israel, 
only apply if Israel's living in the land. You don't keep the sabbatical year if you live in London. It only applies this piece of land. And when he speaks of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, he says, this is the one place on earth where I never close my eyes. My, eye, my gaze is constantly on that place. So that's the first thing you realize, that the, the land is essential. So that when many times, you know, people like Bill Clinton and other presidents have tried to make peace, and they say, well, why don't, what's the big deal with the land? You know, just, you know, divide it up or do this or that. It's just not going to happen. And that's why there's such tension and bitterness and violence surrounding the land. Because the very foundation stone of God's covenant promises to Abraham and his descendants is this piece of geography. This land where God says, not only have I done great things, but it's there when Christ returns and he sets his foot upon the Mount of Olives. Not 90 miles north on Mount Hermon. Much prettier. Not down in the, in the desert, the Sinai on Mount Sinai. Jabal Musa. No, he's not there. He's going to set his foot on the Mount of Olives. Why? Because that is in the prophetic plan of God, ground zero. That's why all this stuff is swirling around. So when we get all upset about politicians and all their different issues, and you got to realize that there is this human conflict that's going on, but really what lies behind is this whole spiritual dynamic that Satan and all the demons of hell are doing everything they can to keep God from bringing to pass his purpose which surrounds this place with this group of people at the end of time. And when you begin to realize that, you start not getting so upset when you're watching the news. You actually know more than the correspondent who's on the scene <laughs> because you're watching the unfolding of God's plan. And it unfolds within his time and his purpose. And he goes on, he says, secondly, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all of these lands. <laughs> and then thirdly, he says, and through your offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed. We see that as the fulfillment or, of the promise of the Messiah. Through you will come. And that becomes more clearly defined as you go through the Old Testament. But what's interesting to most, and hard for most people to get their mind around, is this promise to Abraham being given to Isaac. And it's really kind of the faith of the father is what anchors the blessing, not the works of his sons. We refer to this as, therefore, an unconditional covenant. When we look at Israel today, we look at the Jewish nation today, and people say, well, they're not very godly. You know, there's a whole... Uh, I would say probably most of Christian theology would say today, well, the Jews in Israel aren't following the Old Testament and they're not following the covenant and they're not really doing what God told them to do. So therefore, this can't possibly be a fulfillment of God's regathering his people in the last days. And they're operating on this premise that they have to live up to a set of expectations and behaviors for God to do what he's going to do. And he doesn't say that at all. He says, I'm going to bless Isaac, and I'm going to bless Jacob, and I'm going to bless his 12 sons. And when we get to study about Jacob and his 12 sons, we realize none of these guys deserve this blessing and this covenant. I mean, I love studying Jacob because it makes me hopeful. 
Anybody that's screwed up can make it, man. I know I, I can get through too. But it's based upon this idea of God's grace. Because not only does he show to us the faith of the Father, he also shows us the sin of the Father. And when we watch what Isaac's doing with his wife and basically seeing, this is kind of like a redux of what went before. But Abraham, at least, he did it twice to Sarah. Isaac, we only have record of him doing it once. So he is getting better. Now, to be fair, Isaac's concern, Abraham's concern, wasn't totally irrational because the kind of things that the rulers did in those days was the kind of things they were afraid of. They would kill somebody to take the guy's wife because they're in charge and nobody can tell them no. And in many ways, they saw that as a sign of their own greatness. The idea of having multiple wives was not so much to fulfill some kind of insatiable sex drive. The idea of multiple wives was to say, I'm the biggest stud in town, so be careful. It was a sign of your wealth and your power. We talk about Solomon having a 300 wives and 700 concubines. Some of the Persian kings had 30,000 concubines. And I guarantee you, most of them they never met. It was a status symbol. It was a way of saying, look how great I am. And kings would do that, even in these ancient times. They would take women and build these concubinage and all this stuff just to show how important and valuable they were. But at the same time, what Abraham and Isaac both struggled with, where they really failed, was the fact that if God is going to fulfill his promises, that can't happen. (laughs) You can't die, and your wife can't be taken from you, Because if that could happen, then my promises won't come to pass. As the Lord would later say through one of the prophets, he said, if you can stop stop the sun and the moon from rising and setting, then you can stop my promises and my prophecies from coming to pass. It's kind of like God saying, no, in the end, I really do control it. So, you know, I I know some people, we we worry so much about the aging process and how it affects us and you know, how long we're going to live and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, I mean, I don't want to seem like I'm unscientific. <laughs> but I, I'm going to die when God decides to turn off the switch. I'm not going to die of heart disease or cancer or any other thing. Maybe that'll be the, the biological, the anatomical de- designation. But the reality is that my life is in his hands. He gives life. He takes life away. I am not in control of my own life. And there's a wonderful peace that comes into your heart when you really do embrace that. You know, it's it's just a peace because you realize that it's not this furtive fight to do everything I can to to keep me alive. I I was just, my wife and I was teasing the other day, I said, "We, we just bought some new snake oil and uh, we're always buying these different snake oils that, you know, you, you take them and they promise to rejuvenate you and to return you to youth. I, 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 it, well, should I tell you what it is? I, I don't know. It's careful. Somebody told her it was a great deal. So we said, ah, what the heck? We'll try it. It's, it's uh, bovine collagen, basically ground up cow bones. <laughs> and, you know, you just add it into your coffee and stir it and then you drink it and Boy, before you know it, you feel 20 years younger. 
Now, it says on the label, the flavor might be a little off-putting to some people. (laughs) And I just realized something this morning. There's 16 ounces of this stuff. There's probably enough servings for about 64 days. And my wife will never touch it. That means I have to eat the whole thing. (laughs) Why do we do stuff like that? Well, I mean, I get it. There's... There's wisdom, I suppose, in, you know, not living a, a diet heavily saturated with bacon. But it still sounds like a great way to go to me. But nonetheless, you know, I mean, we, we, we understand this kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that we just don't worry about what happens with our body and don't care. But at the same time, we live in a time that people are so afraid of dying, you'd almost think they have an option. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's really... You are going to die. I hate to ruin your evening. My my deal with God is I want to be as healthy as I can until you take me. But I don't even have control over that. I don't even have control over that. You know, I mean, God may want me laying in a coma, draining my family's savings. I don't know. I have no idea what God has in mind, but we have no control over those things. But you see, the important thing is that sin, the, the faith of the father can be a very positive uh, proponent in, in, in children's life, but it also can be an unhealthy thing. As parents, we imprint upon our kids so much more than we ever realize. I mean, you know, of course, in Exodus, he, he tells us that in, in, in the 20th chapter, in the Ten Commandments, he says he visits the sins of the fathers to the children of the third or fourth generation. But he says, of those who hate me. He says, if you love me, then I'll show you grace and blessing and so forth. And I'm, I'm counting on that. But one of the things you realize is you, as you watch your children grow and you watch your children grow, you realize that you passed on to them things some that are positive and, and some that aren't so helpful. And we can see that in the lives of these men and women that we're studying. They're paying closer track to the time than I am. Um, but when we fail in faith, it fuels fear. When our faith fails, what it does is it fuels our fears. And fear, interestingly, becomes a source of our anger, our resentment. We often think of fear as being a, or excuse me, anger as being a fundamental emotional experience, but actually it's a, it's a secondary emotion because all anger is, begins with being afraid of something. Fear that I'm losing control, fear that I'm losing reputation, fear of losing whatever it is that I fear. And that, that creates the angry responses in us. And when we become angry, we need to step back and say, Why am I, what am I afraid of? What is it I fear that I'm going to lose? But I think the hopeful thing for me, and I better put this thing to bed, is that despite Isaac's fumbling, God blesses him. And the reason why, for me at least, I read Matthew 9, 13 in a, in a different way. When Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees, he said, you don't understand God. You don't know his heart. He says, I would have you go back and read what the scripture says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And I've always read that as God desires to show me mercy. 
It never occurred to me that God says, no, I crave my appetite, my desire, my yearning is to show you mercy. What, what gives God pleasure? To show you mercy. And as I was thinking about that, oh my gosh. When he says in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And we think, of, well, I hope he's one, I'm one of those guys that he does that for because I'm pretty sure I don't deserve it and good chance I'm not going to get it. Can I just feel like, you, you got to feel like the, a whack-a-mole Christian, you know? You're just bucking, ducking and weaving, trying to keep from getting smashed. And just hope God gets tired of extending his wrath before he gets to you. And then I suddenly realized, God says, you know what? What pleasures me is to show you mercy. And I show it to you all day long in a thousand ways that even when you're walking in sin and you don't even know it or recognize what you're doing, I'm showing you mercy because you deserve to be fried right now on the spot. Even when you realize, God, I know this is wrong, I know we shouldn't do that, and I, I just don't care anymore because I can't take it anymore. God says, I'm still not going to fry you because my pleasure is to show you mercy. See, I think Isaac, like most of us, had trouble comprehending the absoluteness of God's unconditional love, his unconditional promises. And it also explains the reaction of the Philistines. Because when we begin to understand God's grace for us, when we begin to understand that we are the delightsome object of his mercy, and, and his blessings come upon us, and we don't deserve them. But nobody recognizes that more than the people around you who don't know him. And they look at your life, and they see the blessings there, and they know you don't deserve them, and you, they know you're no better than they are. And yet it's happening, and they hate you for it, and they resent it because they think it's something that's earned. And what they call unfairness God calls mercy and grace. And when you begin to recognize how much mercy and grace God has for you 24-7, 365, through your whole entire life of 43 years or more, <laughs> you can start to relax. You can start to enjoy. You start being thankful. In the dog-eat-dog -dog world where fears drive passions and, and faith seems to have no effect, that's only true on those who don't understand that God says, I desire, I yearn, I long to flood your life with my mercy. To which the only thing that we can say is, thank you. There's nothing else I can say except thank you, Lord. Father, I pray that you'd help us to see and hear and understand these things in a practical way in our lives. Sometimes when I see these things, it just, it just impacts me so profoundly, especially in times like today where I started the day reacting and dealing with stress in my life in a 
in an ungodly way. And then to suddenly realize that even in those moments, God, your mercy, your grace, your kindness is just overwhelming. That our relationship doesn't alter because we haven't lived up to even our own standards. And while we can say, Lord, thank you, in Jesus' name.